0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Welcome back, cardio nerds. Amit here. I am very excited to learn more about guideline-directed medical therapy today as part of our special Heart Failure Awareness Week series. Joining me today is my good friend and co-fellow, Dr. Karthik Telekuntla. Thanks, Amit. Happy to join. So Karthik completed medical school in the University of Miami. He decided that Miami weather was not up to par and so later moved to Philadelphia for internal medicine residency training at the University of Pennsylvania. The winters just kept getting colder and colder, as he moved to Cleveland for a general cardiology fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. And fortunately for us, we'll be staying here for advanced heart failure fellowship. Of all of my co-fellows, Karthik was um, actually the first person I met. And I think what we had, what, three or four um, interviews together. That's correct, yeah. It's, uh, it's been so great having Karthik as my co-fellow. Uh, I love learning from him and really excited to uh, dive into today's case. Karthik, what are we doing?
2: So Amit, thanks for the kind intro. I'm equally excited to be here with you. Uh, We're going to be talking with Dr. Starling today as part of our Heart Failure Awareness Week, and we're going to be specifically talking to him about guideline-directed medical
1: therapy and heart failure. Amazing. And friends, before we dive in, just remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning about cardiology directly from expert cardio nerds. Hey, cardio nerds! Our series for Heart Failure Awareness Week continues with this very special episode. Karthik and I are absolutely thrilled for our discussion with Dr. Randall Starling today about GDMT, or guideline-directed medical therapy, in heart failure. Karthik, take it away. Thanks, Amit. We feel so honored to
2: have this time with Dr. Starling. Dr. Starling obtained his bachelor's degree and master's in public health at the University of Pittsburgh, medical degree from Temple University. He went back to University of Pittsburgh for his internal medicine residency training and then went to Ohio State University for his cardiology fellowship. He stayed on as faculty at Ohio State until 1995, at which time he joined the Cleveland Clinic. It is difficult to mention all of Dr. Starling's accomplishments and contributions to this field in such a brief bio, but simply put, he has done it all. He's the former section head of the Division of Heart Failure and former vice chairman of the Cardiovascular Medicine Department. Dr. Starling has been the principal investigator on numerous clinical trials and most recently completed his tenure as president of the Heart Failure Society of America. Most importantly, he has and continues to be the strongest advocate for his patients on a daily basis and serves as a tremendous role model for all of the fellows. We always learn so much rounding with Dr. Starling, and we're very excited for him to join us today.
0: Thank you, CarTech. Uh, very happy to be here.
1: So Dr. Starling, as we start, as the immediate past president of HFSA, can you tell us a little bit more about Heart Failure Awareness
0: Week and what it's all about? Thank you very much for bringing that up. And I should mention as a historical footnote that my friend and Uh, esteemed cardiologist who spent plenty of his career at Hopkins, Dr. Arthur Feldman, has recently reminded me that he is the one that really kicked off Heart Failure Awareness Week initially, I believe in the year 2000. Did not know that. Yeah. So Dr. Arthur Feldman, who's now at my alma mater, Temple, he reminded me uh, because he saw something I said publicly and he told me I was incorrect. It goes back <laughs> to when he was president of the Heart Failure Society, that he actually went through some political avenues to make it official. So heart failure awareness it has been around for a while, and we would like to think that this year the efforts that are made by the Heart Failure Society of America and the Cleveland Clinic and many other fantastic medical centers around the country are going to be the best efforts ever. So what is it about? It's You can summarize it very quickly. As the name says, it's awareness. So we want to get the word out to the public that heart failure is one of the largest, major, important medical conditions In the world, and certainly in the United States, it's just not well recognized that the number one cause of hospitalization in the U.S. is heart failure. It's not recognized what the consequences of heart failure are. And perhaps most importantly, it's not recognized that we have fantastic treatments for heart failure now. So Heart Failure Society of America is doubling down, if you will on our efforts. Uh, and many of them are collaborating with some of our industry partners that have been responsible to bring all these fantastic therapies to market that are now available. So it's a team effort like most things we do.
1: That's uh, fantastic. And you know, on behalf of the Cardiners, we're very proud to join in and be a part of this effort and also to be able to help Dr. Starling correct the record publicly
0: for Dr. Feldman. <laughs> uh, and we will have to make sure that Dr. Feldman has a chance to hear this podcast because I know he'll be very happy to hear we've set the record straight. There you, there you go.
2: go. So I want to talk a little bit more about those fantastic treatments. When we started residency, life was simple, and there were three main groups of life-saving medications in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. We had beta blockers, ACEs and ARBs, and MRAs, plus the hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate in the right context. How have things changed since those days, and what is in our arsenal today for guideline-directed medical therapy?
0: Yes, thank you. And let me just put one more pitch in that uh, when we say GDMT, I think it's important that we think in terms of guideline-directed management and therapy. So the the key there is medicine is part of the therapy, but the other important parts of the GDMT approach are managing the patient, which starts with, did you make the right diagnosis? Did you find an underlying condition that was unrecognized? Did you deploy pacemaker and cardiac resynchronization? So it's really comprehensive. We spend most of our time talking about the medicines, but we would like to convey the message that it's really guideline-directed management and therapy. The, the question that you've posed to me, I guess I have the liberty to quote the guidelines, but I also <laughs> will be free with level C evidence or expert opinion. So we've known for years, and it can be the US or the Canadian or the European guidelines. We're all pretty much in sync, or even the uh, most of the Asian societies. So beta blockers, let me talk about that first. I believe that beta blockers are arguably the cornerstone, one of the most important drugs that we use. And at the same time, beta blockers are the most commonly underused drug that I see. And by that, I mean, rarely does a patient come in to my office or to the hospital that has been on maximal medical therapy with respect to a target dose. And we'll talk about target doses and what we know about target doses in a minute. But why are beta blockers so important? They're so important because of all the drugs that we have. The ability to Quote, reverse remodel or facilitate improvement of ventricular structure, I think hands down is with beta blockers. So we have beta blockers, we have ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and ARNI, or angiotensin receptor neprolysin inhibitors. Just to be efficient about this, uh, I think it's clear that my bias now is to get most patients on sacubitril Valsartan. With rare exception, and this is we're talking about half ref or reduced ejection fraction, forty percent or less now. So we have the data from the paradigm HF for chronic outpatient stable heart failure. We have the Pioneer trial, which has taught us we can initiate the drug in the hospital after the patient is stabilized. We have an ongoing clinical trial through the Heart Failure Network that to be determined, but we're looking at very severe heart failure, NYHA Class 4. That's called the LIFE study. And that's going to enroll 400 patients with a six-month endpoint. And bear in mind that Paradigm HF was mainly NYHA Class 2 and 3. The total number of patients with Class 4 in that whole 8,000-plus study was less than 100. So we really don't have much information on severe Mm -hmm. heart failure. So my colleagues, Doug Mann from Washington University, Dr. Brunwald, Dr. Hernandez from Duke, and Michael Gewurz from Brigham and Women's, we've worked through the Heart Failure Network to put this trial together, which would be very important. Now, in the meantime, is there a patient or two at the Cleveland Clinic that has (laughs) severe heart failure that we've put on Secubitral Valsartan and been encouraged? Absolutely. So that's segment. And then perhaps Statistically, the most underused drug are the uh, MRAs, the aldosterone antagonists, the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. And clearly, if you look at a typical uh, registry, you'll see in Europe about 70% of the patients on an MRA. If you look in the U.S., it's more oh. like 25 or 30%. Wow. So, it's a fraction. Yeah. Americans tend to be a little bit more skittish. And I recently had a discussion with Fayez Zanad when I was in a meeting actually in Dubai. And his comment was, he felt, this is Dr. Zanad, who led a lot of the aplarinone uh, outcome studies, that the whole hype over hyperkalemia is over-exaggerated. So yes, we are pretty adamant about pushing to get a patient on that modality of therapy, also now diuretics are not on the list, right? So I say to patients often, think about a loop diuretic as something like Lasix. Most people are taking furosemide or torsemide, and we're trying to figure out which one is better now through a study called Transform HF, which Rob Mentz and others are leading through PCORI, and uh, so it's a large study. We don't know the answer, but we all have our favorite diuretic. But what I tell patients is the diuretic's not going to make you live longer. We have to be cognizant of the fact that many times we need to down titrate diuretics. Many patients present and say, I feel really bad, and the reason why is they've improved and they're being over diuretic hmm. mm-hmm. and they need to come off the diuretic. So diuretics are something that are in the background. I describe them more as cosmetic. They're designed to make you look good and feel good, but <laughs> they, we have no mortality information about them. And so uh, every cardio nerd knows about cardiac <laughs> synchronization therapy. And uh, I have Lived through from the first study, the miracle study, which we participated in at the Cleveland Clinic. So, back then, we didn't know whether it worked and we were blinded. And so, we quickly learned that CRT did work. And it's important to emphasize that CRT comes on the background of optimized medical therapy. Mm -hmm. So, the cardio nerd should understand that if a patient walks in with a nice left bundle on a QRS of 160 and they're medication naive, the temptation is to throw in a CRT. But guess what? Sometimes they do very, very well on medicines alone. And when you evaluate them later on, that QRS may still be wide. It may be narrow. But if the EF is 45 or 50... They're not going to qualify for CRT. But CRT is clearly a game changer. I am a believer in this entity of a dyssynchrony cardiomyopathy. Mm -hmm. Super responders have been well described by our center and others. So it's a fantastic therapy. It's initiated on the background of GDMT medical therapy. And I also would advocate... If you have a patient that's a super responder, most of the time, they're going to stay on medical therapy. In addition, you're not going to remove that background therapy. Thank, Thank you, you yeah. so much for that, Dr. Starling. And I especially appreciate you
1: broadening our conception of GDMT, guideline-directed medical therapy, to management and therapy to include all the device therapies and likely structural interventions that uh, that do play such an important role for our patients. We have so many tools in our toolkit for patients with reduced ejection fraction. What is your strategy for initiating these medications? Do you have a go-to for which medicine you start first? Does it matter on the indication if it's ischemic or not? And in general, how aggressive are you with uptitrating them as an inpatient versus as an outpatient? What's our practical approach here?
0: So there is a paper that's been written on the very question that you're raising. Uh, The author on that paper is Javid Butler, Having said that, I don't know that there's a specific cookbook Mm -hmm. on how to do this. So I'm going to give you my approach that has worked well for me over the years. So I think that a hospitalized patient or an outpatient, first off, we would like them to be euvolemic. And I use the word euvolemic tongue-in-cheek because I could ask both of you to define euvolemia But if you go to the bedside, I think it's hard to be confident and say, this patient is euvolemic. It's like assigning what is this patient's dry weight. That's kind of a a treacherous undertaking to make that assignment. Having said that, you look for edema, neck veins, S3 gallop, all the usual things. And if you think the patient's in a pretty good spot with their volume, you may be aggressive. If they have plenty of blood pressure and start them on uh, an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker or ARNI right off the bat and a low dose of a beta blocker. If I'm worried about the patient still having some degree of congestion, I will tend to start (laughs) the vasodilator, hold off on the beta blocker, maybe give them the MRA at the same time depending on the renal function and the potassium. So that's where it gets tricky, depending on whether the patient has any degree of CKD, what their blood pressure is, etc. I think in the hospital, we would tend, again, to be liberal with the diuretics and then move ahead with the vasodilator and probably the beta blocker a little bit later. Of course, there's nuances there's patients with uh, raging hyperthyroidism, mm-hmm. or sometimes a young patient who's very tachycardic with a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, where you really, I really feel compelled to try to work to get their heart rate down. We may, and they have a marginal blood pressure. It may be a very small dose, and I'm more than content just to get the patient on a low dose of a vasodilator. Uh, especially a non-ischemic, and then I will get aggressive about titrating the beta blocker. Now, as far as how quickly do we do it and what's the timing of that, the conventional teaching, if you go way back to the U.S. Carvetolol trials and the studies that were done years ago, now published in the uh, New England Journal, when it was in a clinical trial, we were taught every two weeks you up titrate. It's a snail's pace. And we were taught when a patient comes in the hospital that's on a beta blocker, you never ever stop the beta blocker cold unless the patient's cold and in cardiogenic shock. But you worry a little bit in the background about beta blocker rebound. But if you're worried about the patient, you cut the beta blocker in half and you wean them off over the next couple days if that's what you think is the right thing to do. As far as up titrating in the hospital, Uh, I'm clearly more liberal about that now than I was 20 years ago. So if I have somebody in the hospital, I may change their beta blocker dose every two to three days if I think they're very stable. If they're very, very tenuous, I'm very, very cautious with the beta blocker. And as far as an outpatient, I don't think either of you have worked in my clinic, but Uh, If I have a patient that I think has got the uh, common sense and the ability, I will write out a beta blocker titration for them to do at home to increase their dose every week or two, depending on how they're feeling and if their vital signs are okay. The Entresto or Secubitrol Valsartan, as you know, uh, again, when we did the paradigm HF study, which we participated in that here at the Cleveland Clinic, we're doing a titration now in the life study. Uh, those titrations tend to be no sooner than every one to two weeks, uh, where you do the usual assessment of the patient with sacubitril valsartan or any ACE inhibitor angiotensin receptor blocker. Most of the time, the limitation on titration is systolic blood pressure, as we all know. As far as MRAs are concerned, the source data on that's very interesting. So I'm going to tell you something that perhaps you aren't aware of. But you may wonder, why did the RAL study look at 25 milligrams of spironolactone? So there's an obscure paper published in the American Journal of Cardiology where a small physiologic study was designed to look at what dose of spironolactone was required to reach sodium balance in patients with heart failure. Hmm. And the dose that was reported in that paper was somewhere around 17 or 18 milligrams Hmm. of spironolactone. So when they designed the RAL study, Dr. Pitt and others, they said, okay, 25 milligrams is the dose. that." Very interesting. So with an MRA, I personally... Don't get super aggressive with titration unless I'm dealing with a patient where I'm worried about ACE escape or they're particularly refractory. But most patients in my practice, 12 and a half to 25 milligrams of plarinone or spironolactone, a small percentage wind up on a higher dose. And I do pretty much adhere to the guidelines, which is an important point to emphasize. The guidelines are extremely conservative suggest that you check potassium 72 hours after initiating an MRA. I try to keep that within a three to seven day window, but we do do that most of the time. And I think you have to be really cautious if you're moving with the MRA as well as the RAS inhibitor at the same time.
2: Dr. Starling, in general, how well are we doing as a country getting people onto GDMT?
0: CarTech, this is a very important question that is something I'm very passionate about. And uh, when I gave a presentation in Philadelphia last September, I made an announcement. And the announcement that I made was that the Heart Failure Society of America was recognizing that one of their focuses would be to facilitate the optimization of guideline-directed medical therapy, specifically medical therapy. We targeted that based on a lot of work, but I will mention the CHAMP, CHAMP registry, which there's now a series of papers that have been published in Jack and Jack heart failure. So the CHAMP registry looked at upwards of 3,000 patients that were at a number of centers in the US. So, what did we find that was particularly concerning? So, this registry told us two very important things. One, what were the percentage of patients that were on these three major classes of drugs beta blocker, MRA, or ARNI, ACE, ARB? And what we found was sobering and disappointing that the percentages were far from a hundred percent, and in many cases sixty to seventy percent for beta blockers and ACE inhibitors. For ARNI, at the time of that registry report, as I recall, the number was around eighteen or twenty percent, and for MRA, it was also uh, a low number. Now, the second part of this is that the investigators looked at target doses. So, what are target doses? So That information is buried in the Mm -hmm. appendices of these studies. So what you find in the appendices are doses of any drug you can think of in heart failure that were the mean doses in the clinical trials. So for example, MERIT-HF, which was the source trial for metoprolol succinate, Mm -hmm. the average dose in that study was 154 milligrams of metoprolol succinate, okay? That's Car- pretty high. That's pretty high, but that's why I push for 150 to 200 milligrams. Now we know. Yeah, <laughs> so you can go back and read that paper. And with Carvedilol, it was 25 milligrams twice a day if you're less than 85 kilos. And if you're over 85 kilos... 50 milligrams twice a day of carvedilol, as long as heart rate and blood pressure were adequate. So in the CHAMP registry, they took those numbers as far as doses, and they said, we're going to give you a free pass and deem you as on target therapy if you're at 50% or more of what was used in a clinical trial.
1: So, so a very reasonable bar. To very reasonable,
0: level. very liberal. And what did they find? Again, extremely mm-hmm. disappointing, that yeah. very few patients in the U.S. are on target doses.
1: And, and as I recall from the PowerPoint you had sent us, our, our colleagues in Europe and Asia aren't doing particularly better.
0: Yes. So I've looked at a number of studies in Europe and Asia, mm-hmm. and that's exactly correct. Uh, so this is a global mm-hmm. issue, and it enables... People like me and others to get up to the podium and speak and to hypothesize that if we did a better job of using the proven drugs at the recommended doses, common sense would say we would reduce in many ways the burden of mortality and morbidity in heart failure. So that's why the Heart Failure Society of America is looking intensively into this issue. Now, Having said that, as you can imagine, this is a complicated, multifaceted undertaking. And I think our current president, Beacon Boscart, who's from Baylor, she wrote a very nice editorial where she said, we have to think about patient-related factors that limit us. We have to think about provider-related factors that limit us. And we have to think about payer-related factors that limit us. A lot of aspects to this treatment gap. Yes, absolutely. So I don't want to throw any of our friends and colleagues (laughs) under the bus, but we've all had a situation where we had a patient that we wanted on a specific therapy where it wasn't so easy, depending on who their provider was, to get approval or access for that therapy, right?
1: Right, So multidisciplinary communication is, I'm sure, so key in coordinating such a multimodality treatment algorithm for our patients.
0: Right.
2: That's very interesting to hear, and hopefully in the future we can do a better job with this. Yes. So let me uh, turn our direction into the inpatient setting. We've all taken care of patients who've been admitted with decompensated heart failure, and oftentimes we're changing their medications around. What is your threshold for stopping or reducing? Doses of these medications during these hospitalizations. Should we be doing that? Should we be leaving them where they are? Well,
0: uh, Kartik, I didn't expect you to ask me any easy questions. <laughs> so this, this is uh, this. We have one coming up later. Yeah, this is a case by case at the bedside decision. But I think there's there's perhaps one simple way to, to think about this, and that's to use the so-called four quadrants approach that was described and popularized by Dr. Lynn Stevenson who's at Vanderbilt and her colleagues when she was at UCLA in Boston so or you can think about the Adhere registry and Dr. Greg Vonero currently chief of cardiology at UCLA he published a very nice study in 100,000 hospitalized patients where he came up with a cart analysis so let me amplify that a little bit. So the pa- patient one comes in, and they're quote-unquote warm and wet. So they're volume overloaded. They We think their cardiac output is fine. You can probably do anything you want to that patient within reason. You can choose whichever arm of the dose study you prefer. Give them a LASIK stripper, give them bolus furosemide, and give them a vasodilator. and. As the three of us know, in our ICU, for example, it's pretty common that we'll be giving something like sodium nitroprusside or oral vasodilators and a LASIK drip all at the same time, right? So I think you have a lot of latitude. And as I mentioned earlier, if the patient's already on a beta blocker, I'm probably not going to down titrate it unless I think the patient's in trouble. Uh, and let me get to what I think in trouble is. So if the patient comes in and they're hypotensive and they're cool and their lactate is up, then it's a whole different ballgame, right? Absolutely. Okay. Um, And then we have all those patients that are in between, patients that have CKD, chronic kidney disease. And I just rounded on a patient a short while ago. That got started on an ACE inhibitor, captopril, in the hospital. And my phenomenal Cleveland Clinic first-year fellow, Alan Kang, said, Dr. Starling, do you think we should continue the Pro in this patient? And I said, why do you ask, Alan? And he said, well, the creatinine went from 2.2 to 2.5, and the potassium went from normal to 5.4. And I said, let's look at the GFRs. We did and they were all between 18 and 19. So some will say if the GFR is under 30, watch out. Some will even go as low as 20, uh, which is what we're doing in the life study. You can have a GFR as low as 20 to qualify for the cubitral valsartan. So that has to be taken into consideration, obviously. And I'm not telling you anything novel that you don't know. Um And the CART analysis looks at some simple things. Like systolic blood pressure, BUN, creatinine, and without quoting the specific numbers, depending on those three numbers, you can see an inpatient mortality from as low as one to two percent to as high as eighteen to twenty wow. percent. And I it's think it really discriminates enough,
1: the different right strata.
0: Right off the bat from the adhere registry. So my fellow probably had to put up with me 10 or 15 <laughs> times today asking him systolic blood pressure, serum sodium, creatinine, BUN, and I'll throw in terminal BNP into that mix now also because we have a lot of data that has emerged courtesy of Dr. Giannuzzi and others and the guide HF clinical trial, which was a quote negative trial, but the data that's starting to appear now says if you can drive that BNP level down to X, uh, the prognosis is better. And that's Fantastic. one of the key factors behind sacubitril Valsartan. As you know, if you look at Pioneer HF, for example, the primary endpoint was a change in N-terminal BNP, right? Yeah, that's right. So we think that that's a good surrogate of other important outcomes. Fantastic. So a high threshold
1: to decrease or stop beta blockers, a low threshold to start and increase vasodilators, not only for GDMT, but also to help with diuresis um, and using hard numbers and data points to help stratify our patients to see who will respond to what. I think that's fantastic.
2: Yeah. Thanks for that. Now, you brought up Arnie and one of the terminal endpoints about the NT-pro-BMP. So say I have a patient who's on lisinopril, or one of the other ACE inhibitors, or ARBs, and I'm seeing them in clinic, and I want to switch them over to ARNI. How do I go about doing that?
0: So I think that's a pretty simple undertaking, and uh, there's two, two choices, basically. One is you get 36 hours off the ACE inhibitor, and you start them on sucubitrol valsartan. And there are algorithms That look at the dose of ACE to give you guidance as to which dose of sacubitril/valsartan you want to start with. So Mm -hmm. there's three doses that we're all familiar with: low, medium, and high. My rule of thumb, most of the time, I start low. If somebody is in clinic and they're taking 40 of Lisinopril and their blood pressure is 120. I'll probably start the mid-range dose okay. of Secubitril-Valsartan. If I'm being real conservative, I'll check uh, labs just to see where they are. But th- the irony of it is that if you look at the published clinical trials, including Paragon, Pioneer, and Paradigm-HF, guess what? When you look at worsening renal function, when you look at creatinine compared to the ACE or the Valsartan versus the ARNI, the Arnie was fine. Uh, and in Paragon, the signal would even suggest that there may have been some beneficial effect of the Arnie versus the Valsartan. So I think that sometimes succubitrol Valsartan, the hype about it trash in the kidneys and you know, leading to worsening renal function. I suggest that people be looking at the patient's volume status and what were the other factors at play, because I don't think we have any specific information that the drug is nephrotoxic. And in fact, one of our former trainees, uh, who's very Renowned heart failure specialist in Europe now, Wilfred Mullins. He's starting to publish papers on the renal protective effects mm-hmm. of sacubitril valsartan. So. I think there's going to be a lot of important information coming out on that.
1: Yeah, you know, I was just on the heart failure rotation and had such a great time learning from Dr. Mountis and Dr. Taylor, and it was pretty cool to see us be able to go down on diuretic doses and, in one case, just stop a diuretic altogether with starting Arnie and is there, Do you have a rule of thumb for what you do with their diuretic dose
0: when you do switch over? So that's a very important point that you bring up, Dr. Goyle. and I think that I learned a lot in the context of the LIFE study. We're now recommending, in the context of that clinical trial, that the investigator a priori consider like a 30% reduction yeah. in the diuretic. That's good to know. At the time of initiating the valve Valsartan. So how does that translate into the real world? So if we used our mock patient that we're using as an example... It had a blood pressure of 120 that was on 40 of was sinopril. Let's say they're on 20 of furosemide, and I thought they were totally euvolemic. Uh, in fact, I just had a patient not too long ago that Zach, my clinic fellow, and I were presented <laughs> with, who's from Qatar, that we had to finesse some things we just immediately started to down titrate. But in that imaginary patient with uh, high ACE and good blood pressure, I would probably say stop the furosemide and keep that in the background kind of as needed. If I could communicate that clearly to the patient how to use a PRN diuretic, which I should mention that I really try to encourage training a patient just like you would train somebody to use uh, regular insulin, PRN, mm-hmm. depending on their glucometer. I don't have a fluidometer <laughs> that, that, that I could check. But if I did, I, I would advocate PRN diuretics and try really hard not to over-diurese a patient.
1: I really like that approach because I think that by empowering them to help adjust their medications, they probably get more engaged in their own data and numbers
0: and care. 100%. And I would argue that some of the most engaged patients uh, are the types that wind up with internal pressure sensors, like the product that we're all familiar with, the CardioMEMS device, that before you know it, patients want to know their readings all the time. (laughs) But but I, I think the key point that you just said is empowering the patient I think in heart failure, it's so important to educate the patient. It's not about, here's a bottle of pills, take these pills. They need to understand why. So oftentimes, a patient will say to me, mm-hmm. uh, why should I take spironolactone? I feel fine. Why should I switch from lisinopril to sacubitril valsartan? And I try to cool, very cool, calm, say to the patient, well, I'm glad you're feeling well, but... The uh, the spironolactone in a clinical trial reduced mortality by thirty uh, percent. Secubitral valsartan reduced mortality by almost twenty percent. So uh, that's led to some people saying perhaps the most to gain are the class two patients where they're looking at many years ahead versus right. the very severe yeah, patient. Time for the curve. You're, you're, you're trying to buy them the survival advantage with a better drug. And Secubitrol Valsartan, shortly after the Paradigm study, we published a paper in circulation with Milton Packer and many of the co-authors that showed in the Paradigm cohort, we looked at things like need for transplant, need for LVAD. You're not surprised that that paper said the... Patients on Secubitril, Valsartan, did not progress at the same rate as the patients that were on Enalopro. Yeah,
1: it's a, as good a motivator as anything.
2: Yeah. One of the medications we haven't talked about uh, during this podcast is Evabridine.
0: Can you give us a couple of your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I think Evabridine is an important drug. And you know, Carl Svedberg really led the charge with that drug. And for reasons that I don't fully understand, Evabradine just hasn't taken off in the U.S. like it has outside of the U.S. And four or five years ago, my colleague, Wilson Tang, and I, we proposed a study within the Heart Failure Network to use Evabradine. And at the end of the day, um, we got some pushback. And that study was not prioritized. And without mentioning any specific names, uh, (laughs) there was some hesitancy from some of the leadership that, in general, in the U.S., we didn't use beta blockers appropriately. And one of the criticisms that has come out of the Evabradine trials, which I'm not sure that I buy as valid was that they never optimized the beta blockers appropriately. So in my own practice, I have some patients now on evabradine. So if either of you were my patient and I had you on a maximum dose of a beta blocker and your heart rate was 75 or 80, I'd put you on Evabradine. Uh So it's, it turns out it's a small number of patients, at least in my practice, mm-hmm. but I think it's a tool we should use. That's great. So we have so much data to
1: support the use of these medications, but what do we know about how different populations respond differently um, and do they accrue the same benefits, women and minority groups?
0: So again, really good question. And uh, let me reflect on that a little bit from Paradigm HF. So Paradigm HF I was involved in and the U.S. was looked at to see that we did a good job in addressing the Afro-American cohort. So because not every country can recruit patients that are Afro-American. Of course. uh, We were asked to recruit 500 patients from the entire U.S., We fell a little bit short of that mark. And if you look at some of the editorials that have been written about Paradigm HF, one of the limitations that is cited at times is that the sample of Afro-Americans was not adequate. Now, Pioneer did a better job with increased enrollment of Afro-Americans. So all the data that I'm aware of would suggest that efficacy in Afro-Americans is equivalent, and safety also, because the concern was angioneurotic edema. So there was the push that was put on us to get adequate numbers of diverse populations was for safety also. So I'm not aware of any signals at this time. Um, There is a study, and I don't recall the name of it, but there is a clinical trial that I'm almost 100% positive has been conducted in Asia to look specifically at sacubitril valsartan in the Asian patient population. I'm, I'm not aware of the results of that trial, but one of my friends and colleagues, Professor Hiro Tosui, who's the past president of the Japanese Heart Failure Society has been leading that clinical trial.
1: That's fantastic.
0: And the number of Hispanics was not a significant number, so we don't have a lot of data in that area. As far as women are concerned, you know, rarely do we get a balanced trial as far as males and females. But a little bit off the path of our primary discussion here, but just because I think it's important to mention that Paragon HF, which was heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, 45% or greater, Valsartan versus sacubitril Valsartan, right? So Dr. Solomon published that primary data on that. And the number of women in that trial was one of the highest percentages of any heart failure clinical trial. And in some of the sub-analyses, the signal showed that perhaps women with ejection fractions of 56% or less had potentially the most robust response mm-hmm. to that drug. And there, there will be more data that comes along in additional clinical trials looking at uh, sacubitril valsartan in patients that are hospitalized with ejection fractions greater than 40%. Those clinical trials are just getting off the ground as we speak.
2: Let me play devil's advocate here for a second. We have all these life-saving drugs, and my patient is taking the Corég twice a day, the Arnie, it's also twice a day, the MRA, and all of these medications are only helpful if, one, the provider's prescribing them, and, two, if the patient is taking them. How many is too many when we get to these medications for our patients? Or is there no limit?
0: So... Dr. Kalakunta, I thought you were going to throw out the polypill word to me. I wanted to, (laughs) but I... (laughs) So somebody asked me that question in Dubai two weeks ago about the polypill. So it's a very important question. And, you know, in a perfect world, we would want a patient to take one pill a day, right? So that is something that I worry about. And especially if a year from now we have another drug. Right. An SGLT two inhibitor. Inhibitors. I think that's in the back of everyone's minds. That was a question that I personally asked Professor John McMurray at the heart failure meeting when he was kind enough to present DAPA HF. There, I said, John, we can't get people to take three medicines. What are we going to do? So this is this is a big challenge. I don't have the answer. Attempts at the poly pill in the past by Saleem Yusuf when you know, Ramaprol and other drugs came along. At least in the U.S., it never really took off. But it's an important point that you raise, which is that of compliance. And it does bring another important point up that I'd like to make, which is how do I tell patients to take these drugs? And I've actually learned some very interesting things from our patients with pressure monitors in their bodies. So, The rule of thumb to tell the patient is for Cubitrol Valsartan, don't take anything else, either two hours before or two hours after the drug. Because very common situation is the patient that comes in the clinic that says, gee, I cut this drug in half or I'm not taking this drug. Why? Well, I take my medicines and then I feel kind of unsteady on my feet for an hour or so. And I say, how do you take them? Well, I take everything and put them in my hand and just (laughs) (laughs) pop them down the hatch all at once. So sometimes the simple thing like spreading out when they take the medicines does the trick. And again, as we know, we've all given Mm -hmm. all these drugs to people with swan-gans catheters in, right? Mm -hmm. So I've now got a collection of patients that I was trying to titrate their Secubitril-Valsartan, and the nurses were telling me, gee, their PA pressures are really low, and this and that and the other. So I had to drill down and find out, when do you take the Secubitril-Valsartan? When does zocardium uh reading take place? And one of the patients was checking his... Readings like 20 to 30 minutes after Sucubitrol Valsarger. Oh, right. So yeah. we were getting hemodynamics at the peak effect right. of the drug. It's
1: also very cool that you see that, that correlation in effect. I mean, it's just physiology at play. It's, uh, it's working. Yeah. So our last question for you today, Dr. Starling, is what makes your heart flutter about heart failure?
0: Well, uh, <laughs> what makes my heart flutter about heart failure? Is a few different things. And probably the biggest flutter is that I meet a patient, they're sick, they have a low EF, sometimes they're in the hospital, sometimes they're not, and then we embark on a journey, which is optimized GDMT. And you wait, you follow the patient, you titrate. Sometimes maybe they had some AFib that you had to deal with and you took care of that. And then Six months later, a year later, they're in great anticipation. What happened to my heart? What's my ejection fraction? What's going on? The greatest joy is the day that sometimes in clinic I'll have two or three or three or four patients that day one when I met them, their EF was 20. And I'm sitting there in the office saying your ejection fraction is 55% your mitral regurgitation is gone, and your heart has gone from seven centimeters to five centimeters. That's really cool. And I'll tell you one other quick anecdote. We have a patient that I've been taking care of. He needs a heart transplant, okay? And long story short, he wound up in our ICU on a balloon pump waiting to get a transplant. 61 days later, last Friday, uh, I get the email. I was actually in another city at a meeting, but Mr. So and so, we have a donor heart. Uh, I was in Houston. That was probably around eight or nine o'clock. So, about 10 o'clock, I called into the hospital. I said, Patch me through to heart failure ICU, <laughs> patch me through to room six. So, I got to talk to my patient and say, It's happening. That's so, just amazing. Yeah,
1: I mean, there's so many special moments sprinkled throughout medicine and the care of patients, but moments like this just have to be among the top.
0: Yeah, it's uh, and we're we're not here to convince all the cardio nerds to be heart failure specialists, <laughs> but one of the one of the neat, cool things about being a heart failure doctor is the longitudinal aspects of care. So that I have patients now that I've been taken care of for 20 years. I saw a lady upstairs today and she said, thank you for taking care of my husband. Thank you for taking care of my son. Thank you for coming by to see me today. So it's not just uh, a quick interface, which could be life changer in the case of what surgeons and interventional cardiologists do. But I look at the heart failure doctor as yeah, some of my colleagues would say you're egotistical, but we're, we're the general contractor. We're the coach <laughs> of the team. We're the conductor of the symphony. We need many instruments to play good music. We need help from everyone, but we have to know when to coordinate those efforts, when to bring the right people in. And our focus is on the end result with the patient, of course.
1: Well, that's um, that's just so beautiful, Dr. Starling, and so inspiring. And I can't thank you enough for your time today. I know you're in a busy service staffing, what, 32, 33 patients just mm-hmm. today. But this was so incredible. We learned so much. And I just, I kind of wish I had had this when I started my fellowship. <laughs> but uh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Starling. Well that brings us to the end of our show, so it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds, and please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to cardionerds
0: at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. Beep. Beep.